The murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department shocked the conscience of an entire nation. Violent protests have erupted all across the country, and calls to defund the police have rang out from coast to coast. There have been three primary issues. Police brutality, police racism, and lack of police accountability. As communities search for answers and change, police officers feel abandoned and betrayed. Many struggle to comprehend how the actions of four police officers in Minneapolis have tarnished the badge of every police officer across all 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. In the weeks leading up to the murder of George Floyd, police officers were being touted as heroes for their bravery in the face of COVID-19. In an instant, they had been vilified as outcasts. For 21 years, I served as a police officer with the Dixon, Illinois Police Department, 10 of those as the police chief. In 2017, I was elected to serve as vice president of the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police. As I met with law enforcement executives across the state, I shared this message. Major change reform is coming to law enforcement. We can either create the change, be the change, and lead the change, or we will become victims of change. Today, once again, many law enforcement agencies are victims of change. Where does a community start to heal and strengthen? It will require intimate conversation. It will require honesty. It will require vulnerability. It will require education. It will ultimately require leadership from those that will have conversations with others that were perhaps never had before. Now more than ever, law enforcement needs great leaders to step forward and lead. One of those visionary leaders is Aurora, Illinois Police Chief Kristen Zeman. Chief Zeman also serves as Vice President-at-Large for the International Association of Chiefs of Police. In this podcast, Chief Zeman and I took on the topic of policing in America. We were brutally honest about the challenges and issues facing this great profession, discuss many solutions that will pave the way forward. One thing is for sure. Law enforcement and our communities are ready to take on and overcome this challenge. Due to the complexity of these issues and the length of the conversation, this podcast has been broken into two segments. Both will become available on the same date. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are joined by Kristen Zeman, the Aurora, Illinois Police Chief. I've, I've known Kristen for some time now. Um, as people are familiar with, I was the police chief of Dixon for 10 years. Uh, Kristen is on the front edge of leadership in policing. And today we're going to take on a very important topic, and that's policing in America. There's so many challenges facing our great profession, and there are challenges that this profession is ready to step up and meet, but to do that with key stakeholders. I think Kristen is going to provide incredible insight into this. We're going to learn about her career, her, her rise to police chief, uh, Aurora. I believe, it, Kristen, Aurora is the second largest uh, community in Illinois, yes. correct? Second, second largest city in Illinois. Something to bring up at your next cocktail party. <laughs> Something at the next cocktail party. <laughs> so I just couldn't be more excited. Kristen holds many different positions. Like I have no idea how she has time to sleep. She's a vice president at large with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, a phenomenal organization, executive board member at the Police Executive Research Forum, uh, which is PERF, 
co-chair recruitment and training on the Presidential Commission of Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice, Illinois Sensing Policy Advisory Council, Supreme Court Commission on Pretrial Practices, Final Report Implementation Task Force, co-chair of the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police Diversity Committee. Committee. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. How do you find time to be involved in all of these different, very important things? Yeah, when you just read that, it struck me. I'm like, wow, why am I so tired? Um, it is, uh, you know, it's a lot of prioritizing. You know, unfortunately, in, in a time in my life where, you know, my kids are uh, all in college, so um, I have that time to devote now fully. You know, when you talk about work-life balance and people have always asked me that, how do you work-life balance? And, you know, and the honest answer is um, I'm terrible at it. If I'm doing a really good job in policing um, at my job, then I'm usually failing somewhere you know, as a parent and as a partner, but if I'm, you know, and then vice versa. So um, it's been, you know, these, here's the, the, the honest to God answer is these organizations um, make me better as a police chief. And that makes me better to serve my, my officers in my community. And so I think that we have to make time in order to become more knowledgeable. I have learned so much by being a part of IACP. That's the gold standard of, you know, policy across the entire nation and international nationally. Being a part of PERF, and those are the two top ones as far as police research. This is These are the subject matter experts, you know, the melting pot of, of, of intellect and data and research. And so just being a part of that and making time for that, it's a force multiplier. So, you know, the answer is um, sometimes I'm running in 17 different directions. Um, but interesting enough with COVID, um, it's actually, if there's one silver lining with COVID, it's taught me that we can also work smarter. So, you know, with now the Zoom calls, I'm not getting on a plane and traveling, you know, to, 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 to these meetings. So we're actually being pretty efficient right now. So, you know, it, it's all, it's all seeming to work right now, but it's important to, to make time for that to prioritize. Well, there's, you know, policing, there's never been a time in policing where there's been a greater need for leadership and for leaders like you to step up and step forward. I know when I was running for vice president of the Illinois Chiefs a few years ago, uh, one of the things I said was major change and reform is coming to law enforcement. And we can either be the change, create the change and lead the change, or we can be victims of change. And we need more leaders like you stepping up, especially in times like these, to lead that change. I appreciate that. However, I think that leadership in a sense is over-glorified and that uh, it's truly the followers that make an organization. And we saw this with COVID. You know, I've been the police chief now for, gosh, over four and a half years, almost five years. It'll be five years in January. And we had a mass shooting um, in February of 19, where five of my cops got shot and five officers and five civilians were killed. And that was, you know, it went in that moment of, you know, leadership. But truly, it was, you know, it was everyone doing the thing that they were supposed to do. It was cops running towards gunfire and getting shot one after another. And, you know, and I bring that up because, again, I was the one standing at the podium. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, that's leadership to stand at the podium. But really, I was just telling the story of the, the true, you know, the true heroes that, that did the thing, you know, the first line. And then you add on top of that, 
our next crisis, which is COVID. And by the way, uh, leader leading during COVID uh, was a very interesting thing because I will acknowledge wholeheartedly I had no idea what I was doing. And I told my department that is, you guys, this is a pandemic and we have, I know, we know how to do a mass shooting, right? That's operational. We know how to handle an incident. No matter what is thrown at us, we've got this. You throw something like a pandemic and I'm not sure, you know, what the police are supposed to be doing. Do we, you know, how how do we handle this? And then once again, as patterned, these officers stepped up, started working 12 hour shifts, were on eights and put themselves out there in, you know, in, in a different kind of harm's way with a virus, you know, and went out there and policed our community and kept it safe, you know, during this crisis, then you have the riots and there they are again, doing the thing that they do. So you know, I love that, you know, people say, wow, it's leadership, but truly leadership is, is over glorified. And it's, it's, it's the people who are doing the work, um, that are the ones that should, should, you know, be given, you know, all the accolades. Spoken like a true leader in the essence of of great leadership and servant leadership, you know, it's funny because when you think about leadership, Leadership isn't about doing the job and doing the things. It's mm-hmm. taking care of the people that are doing the job and doing the things. And, and what you just talked about and a few incredible examples that will blow most of our listeners away is why I believe policing is one of the most honorable and noble professions that in the entire country. Couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So when I hear you talk, I hear incredible passion, incredible energy, and that comes from from purpose. What are you most passionate about? I am most passionate about police officers. And I say that, you know, in an unpopular time right now <laughs> where police officers are not everyone's favorite. Uh, but I, I came into this profession at 17 years old. I literally graduated from high school in June and started as a police cadet, which is the same as an intern um, in July. And the reason that I chose this profession is because my father was a police officer. And what I started to note in my formative years is that Um, he would run towards things that other people just kept driving by. Uh, For example, at 10 years old, he said, don't move, stay in the car. You know, I'm in the back of my, my dad's station wagon and he's, um, you know, pulling people out of a car that just got into an accident. And another occasion he's, saying, you know, don't move. And he's wrestling the keys from a driver who, a drunk driver who had just hit um, someone. And so I thought that's so weird. Everybody is buzzing by that told me something about first responders. And so that's why I wanted to get into the profession. When I got into the profession, I started to realize that most officers get into the profession for the very same thing because they're that their molecules are built, you know, with, with service in mind and, and fundamental fairness and equity and being a voice for those who don't have a voice. So I am passionate about police officers who are in alignment with, nobility with the nobility and the noble and the noble responsibility that that befalls policing i am passionate about what policing can be and i know that it has its faults so i am not one of those who sit here and say we are so good and we're perfect and we don't need to change that couldn't be further from the truth i'm passionate about getting policing to the point where everyone else sees it the way that we see it and 
it's interesting because the ebb and flow, you know, of Gallup polls is that we're, it's, it's like this, you know, after 9-11, we're, you know, up here and then, you know, well, then you have Rodney King and then, you know, our, our approval rating is lower. There's always an, an ebb and flow or a pendulum shift as it were. And, you know, and I think that the thing I'm most passionate about is just trying to get um, people to both inside the profession, get, get the noble ones to stay and to weed out the ones who are dishonoring our badge, tarnishing our badge. And, uh, and then, you know, to get the public at large, the community to see what I see in the servant hearts of, of these first responders. I think one of the hardest things for, for people like you and I, who have, you are leading, I have led a police department that's full of character, full of integrity, uh, based in a, in a foundation of anti-racism mm-hmm. that, that wants to help those who can't help themselves, that wants to give a voice to the voiceless and a face to the faceless. But the problem is that across the United States, there are 18,000 18, police departments. Mm-hmm. And of those 18,000 police departments that have millions, hundreds of millions of contacts a year, there are incidents occur. There are bad things that that happen. And unfortunately, as a profession, what happens in Minneapolis, we wear that. Yeah. And that's wearing. And it's funny, you talk about the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows. You talk about 9-11 and Rodney King, but let's talk about COVID Mm -hmm. and our first responders and our heroes and a pedestal. And then we talk about the unjustified and inexcusable murder of George Floyd. And now it's defund every police department across the country. And that's tough. And, but it also shows the special kind of men and women it takes black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Muslim to put on this badge and to go out and serve in spite of all that. Yeah. I'm drawn to a story of, of a person who had their bicycle stolen. I was reading this online and the police show up and they meet with this person who has this huge defund the police sign in their yard mm-hmm. and they go out and they find and recover the bike and they make the arrest and they return it and they provide the highest levels of service for this person. And that just really exemplifies what this profession is is all about. Oh, absolutely. And in the same way that when you have protesters holding signs up, you know, that, you know, that are terribly disparaging to the police and yet the police are there to protect them. And, you know, and that's what it is. It's that you mentioned the sense of purpose, this alignment to something, you know, bigger than us. And so the good police officers, which by the way, are the majority of the police officers, you know, understand the, a person's right to protest, understand, you know, a person's right to feel the way they do. But you, you know, you mentioned defunding the police, you know, in George Floyd. And, you know, so let's go backwards to that moment in time where, you know, George Floyd was killed, where that police officer put his knee on his neck for eight minutes and over, over eight minutes and 40 seconds, um, you know, and, and what that felt like. And, 
And for me in that moment, um, and for most police officers in that moment, and I have said this loudly and I will say it boldly again, is that if you didn't watch that and you didn't uh, think that there was something terribly wrong with that and that that was, that was just murder, then turn in your badge. Um, and so if you didn't have that feeling, then you shouldn't be in this profession. But what strikes me about that particular moment in time that didn't happen in my city it didn't happen in my state, you know, we're not making headlines, is that just like that, the pendulum shifts. It, it just completely shifts to, you know, we hate the police, defund, abolish. And what I've tried to tell my police officers is that you are the same person that you were before that cop killed George Floyd. You put this uniform on that afternoon and you're, 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 there's nothing different but the public is viewing you in the same, with the same broad brush. You know, we're being painted with that. And that is the cross that we have to bear. There's nothing that we can do about it. The only thing that we can do is stay resilient and continue to do our jobs. Show up to the houses that call 911, even if they have a defund the police sign in their front yard, um, even if they're disparaging towards us, you still have a job to do, which is based on service and fundamental fairness. And that job cannot be wavered. And I think our police officers, it's a testament to their character that they continue to show up and answer 911 calls. And, and as far as defunding the police, so interesting because the truth of the matter is policing for, since I've been in the profession for now 27 years, we've been yelling that, not necessarily in that term, right, defund the police, but we've been saying, stop putting all of these social ails on the shoulders of police officers. We are dealing with homelessness. We are dealing with mental illness. We are dealing with substance abuse, none of which most are, are criminal in nature, but we are the first ones called you know, to those events that happen in people's lives. And we've been saying for years, that's, we're, we're, we're not trained to do that. Well, now mental illness, I have 307 cops who have been trained in CIT and crisis intervention training. So they're, they can handle, you know, going to mental illness calls, but that's what we've been again, touting for years. So when people say defund the police, I don't want you to do it at the expense of my budget because 91% of my budget is personnel. So if you defund my agency, then we're not going to be able to provide the level of service that we have, but I fully support funding social service agencies to assist us. Yeah. One hour. So a couple of different things, like we talk about the impact of an act, you know, thousands of miles from us, right. Mm -hmm. On, on us locally. And that's really because we, we are seen as an institution as a whole, which is a difficult thing as we talk to our officers and keep their spirits and their morale and their, their mindset in the right place. That's a tough thing. We'll, we'll take that on in a few minutes. But this defund the police thing, the other thing we've talked a lot is we, we can't just hear, we have to listen. Mm. And defund the police isn't about a true eliminate the police and take away their budgets. I mean, that might be in a few little, but it's really about we need change. In, in 2020, with all that's happened and all the reform and all the great things, how is it even possible for four police officers to kill a man in broad daylight with, with 50 or 60 people standing around knowing they're being videotaped, right? That, that's, that shocks 
the con it shocks your conscious, it shocks your officer's conscious, it shocks everybody's conscious. Yeah. How does that happen? Obviously, you have a failure um, in not only policy, but let's just say policy perhaps has it written that there's a duty to intercede, that there is a duty, um, you know, to put life, to preserve life above all. Um, but policy means nothing if the culture is that, that uh, you know, that, that allows for it, um, that those acts of omission or, um, you know, just being complicit in it. So what that tells me in that organization, um, you know, it, and usually I'm uncomfortable, you know, talking about other organizations and, and failures, but I will full, I will front and center say, that's obviously a failure. If you have one police officer who is doing something and three are watching and, and don't do anything about it. So that tells me the culture there is broken. And when that culture is broken, you know, you have to fix it. So policy can say one thing. Policy says thou shalt not, you know, commit excessive force. Um, and, and then you, if you have officers that do it and with other officers standing at their side or they give locker room high fives, you know, uh, then, then your policies mean nothing if you don't enforce those policies. And that means that every single person on the department, not just supervisors, but, but those who stand next to you, your peers, must have the ability and be empowered to say, hey, enough, I'll take it from here. You know, And we've seen that. That is, you, know, you mentioned about how you know, law enforcement is sometimes it can be messy. There are people who don't go with the program. We call them our no people, right? We've got our yes, maybe people, our yes people, our maybe people, and our no people. The no people are the ones who are non-compliant, the ones who, no matter what we say or do, they are going to put up a fight. So is that is that pretty? No, it doesn't look good on video. It doesn't look good anywhere. And then we also see officers who are human beings that perhaps can, you know, find themselves getting agitated. So what we train in our department is we actually put officers through these this experiential training. We set up role players where we have an officer wearing this uniform uh, that is put in a scenario where they're committing an act of excessive force. They may be, you know, kneeing someone who's in handcuffs and we send two officers in um, and see how they respond. And if they do not pull that officer off, if they do not remove that officer from that situation, then you know we stop the scenario and say, why did you do that? It has to be built into the DNA of an organization. And that means de-escalation has to be built into every training scenario. Duty to intercede has to be reminded at every single step of the way that this is your duty. You know, not only are you saving that officer, but you're also preserving, you know, a life, humanity in the process. So Culture and policy have to be in tandem. Yeah, absolutely, they, they do. And, and I agree with you 100%. When, when I look, I've talked to my black friends and my white friends and my Hispanic friends and my male friends and my female friends about this. And when I watch the video of those Minneapolis police officers, I, I, don't, I don't know that anything changes if George Floyd is white or Hispanic, right? What I see is a systematic culture issue. When you're willing to do that in broad daylight with spectators, knowing you're being video recorded, you've done, that's not the first time that's happened. It's the first time it's happened publicly and a death has resulted. You know, do you, do you agree? Do you think that that incident had anything to do with race at all? 
I don't know. I, I don't know the police officer. You know, you talk about trying to get in someone's head, you know, right? And and obviously, you know, our African-American brothers and sisters um, have had enough of this. And now, as it turns out, George Floyd is an African-American, and that was the, the thousand tiny cuts, you know, as a metaphor. And that was the proverbial straw. It was enough is enough. Now, to ask me, do you think it was race-related? I would have to get inside that police officer's head. You know, would he have done that to a white person? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. But I think that we as police officers, um, especially the bystanders uh, that were police officers standing there watching this happen, for me, it wouldn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It, it, this is humanity. This is, again, you know, first and foremost, we preserve life. And that was most certainly a demonstration of the contrary. And so I, I can't answer that. I don't know what that 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 officer's motivation was. Uh, but, you know, I guess one has to, you know, add two plus two is four. And you have, you know, our, our like I said, African-Americans being killed at the hands of police officers in that some of them that same way. Um, unjustified. And, uh, you know, I, I think you have to look at it in that way, or at least consider that fact. Well, it's absolutely reasonable for people to draw that conclusion. I, I think one of the things that, that's really hard for, for officers, I talk to officers, you talk to officers, is when you're a police officer that's always treated people fairly, mm -hmm. that has never discriminated against anybody, regardless of gender, religion, ethnicity, right? To, to hear these things and hear these attacks. But I have to tell you, and, and, and we'll see how you felt about it. But I thought when Chief Cunningham, uh, the former president of IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, stood in front of, of 15 or 20,000 law enforcement executives in San Diego several years ago, and apologized on behalf of our institution for the racism and the discrimination and the improper treatment of communities of color, I thought that, that was amazing. That was a, a great first step as an institution. What was your take on that? I had never been more proud to be a part of the International Association of Chiefs of Police at the leadership of Terry Cunningham when that happened. Now, I will tell you, a lot of people quit the IACP as a result of that. I will say for, for those that quit, um, they, had, they, they gained even more members, but there are a certain um, you know, small percentage of people that felt that that was in this, and you've heard this argument before, well, I, I didn't do it, you yeah. know? I did not do that, so why am I being held uh, responsible? And this is funny because this is on my desk. Okay, it may not be your fault, but you're responsible. And so it was. It's none of the systemic racism that has been built into law enforcement is none of our faults. But are we responsible? Yes, because we wear the uniform. And and I don't know how it, it, it doesn't take anything away from any of us to say we acknowledge that that happened and that pain is real and whether you personally have felt it or not people have it is real and if you cannot if you don't have the intellectual capacity to try and understand the pain of someone else just using that empathy and and again i am i'm a white 
female. So I have never experienced that. My deputy chief, uh, both the one who just retired and, and my current deputy chief are both African-American males who have told me stories in their lives about uh, being discriminated against. And I, again, I've never felt it. They asked me, hey, your son, um, how many times has he been pulled over? I have a 20-year-old son. And from the time he's, he's had his license for 40 years. And, um, you know, and, and I said, oh, gosh, you know, he kind of drives like a jerk sometimes. You know, he's been pulled over, you know, maybe like yeah, three times. And they're like, yeah, my son's been pulled over in double digits. You know, a young black man. What, you know, what do you make of that? We live in the, you know, in the same area, you know, and how, how can you how can you not say that there's a disparity there? So to, to answer your question and I'm being long-winded about it is that I, as, as a profession, we have to acknowledge the oppression. We have to acknowledge that at some point in time, law enforcement was part of, of this systematic racism and we have to acknowledge it and we have to now build back better. Yeah. So I, th I think the, the, so many amazing, amazing, amazing points there. One of the things you you said that it's hard for us to do, right? But to, we have to put ourselves in their shoes. Yes. We have to understand their experience and where they're coming from. Because the truth is, in the history of American law enforcement, for the majority of that time, the police were used to implement and execute very racist practices that were discriminatory in 1838. And, and this is where I think, I think this is important, like to be taught in the academies mm -hmm. and for us to understand in 1838, the American institution of policing, the first formal municipal police department was created in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It was created with the initial intent to protect goods and services by the wealthy. They were tired of paying for it and they saw a public good very quickly very quickly, the people in power began to use those police officers to intimidate their political rivals for their own gain. A matter of fact, that's when the people in power, the, the power, the party in power promoted the captains and lieutenants of the precincts and stuff. In the South, the institution of policing a few years later was adopted with, with a, a primary function to preserve the institution of slavery. And in fact, during the Jim Crow lynchings, um, half of those police officers were present. Another quarter of those they knew and did nothing, right? And, and so we're not responsible for that. But then when we look at, you know, you step through the days in the 1900s and, you know, in the mid-1900s and the early 1900s and, you know, the segregation and, and you got to sit in the back of the bus or you can't go into this restaurant and, so we've got to understand and own as an institution. That's what I thought was so powerful about Chief Cunningham coming out and doing that. We have to understand that when, when you're 70 years old, right? A, a, a black man who's 70 years old and what you've gone through and what your experiences are. And as, 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 as people, as parents, as communities, we pass on what those experiences, right? And those are real. Those are real. And it's not your fault and it's not my fault. We've never done that, but it's the fault of the institution. And we chose to join this institution. And I'm a big, big fan of whenever there's a problem, we have to first ask, we can't, we have to first, what part of the problem am I? In this case, what part of the problem are we? And we have to eliminate ourselves from that and own it. And we've got to seek first to understand, then be understood. And in the, in the words of Stephen Covey, have it for um, and we've got to put ourselves in those, sh in those shoes. Mm -hmm. And so 
So I think it's important for us to educate police leaders, to educate police officers on this situation, because then we're going to be much better equipped to take these issues on. Your thoughts? Oh, I could, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think what happens is, is that there's some, you know, perhaps a, a naivete that when you come into the profession and if you don't know the history, and that's why you hit it, that this should be taught in the academies, because I don't think people realize that's why the mindset is, I didn't do that. I was not, I wasn't alive at that time. You know, my grandparents weren't alive at that time, you know? And so we have this tendency to say, I, I had nothing to do with that. So therefore this should not fall on my shoulders. But I think that, you know, again, as you know, an intellectual thinking human being, we have to be able to, to hold that, that opposing thought in our head to say, but people were affected by this. And I am now in this institution that was responsible for that at that time. And, you know, when laws were built, you have to, you know, it's not just police officers, you know, legislation was made again to, you know, to oppress, you know, it, it was built into our, our system. And, and that's exactly right. You mentioned, you know, how law enforcement was used to make sure that slaves didn't run away, you know, and so that's precisely why, you know, that, that people view our institution in that way. And now this is where, that we can sit here all day and I tout all day, I am a progressive police chief. You know, in the evolution of policing, we've gotten more professional. We then adopted Sir Robert Peel's The Public or the Police and The Police or the Public. And then we brought in community policing. And so we have made great strides. I mean, when I came into policing, there was not one female in, in a supervisory rank. You know, I mean, I can go back to the, the first female that was ever allowed to put a uniform on. And that happens, you know, in the late sixties, you know, and so it wasn't that long ago, but so, but that is nothing compared to, you know, as a female that, that doesn't even scratch the surface, you know, of the pain and suffering, uh, again, by our African-American brothers and sisters. And so we have to acknowledge that. And that thank you for saying seek first to understand and then be understood because once you understand the history well then you can't you can't unknow it when you know better you do better and so then you're more sensitive and and more um, empathic to that and so i think that it should be mandatory for every police officer to have to be given that history and that knowledge so they can better police and they can understand and again do better than than our ancestors yeah 100% when you know better, you do better. I love that. I, I wrote that down. Um, I, I think that, that, that that's incredible. I love your passion for this. I love the acknowledgement. You know, we, we, we seek to understand, we, we seek to empathize and, and those things, but we never truly will. And that's why listening right now and truly, truly listening, not just hearing what's said, but listening and understanding it's so important. One, another thing that really struck me as I was trying to grapple with this and think about this and you know, the, the sediment against and the negativity towards saying all lives matter. And it was put very succinctly. Um, and it's something I've been sharing a lot with, with our teams and our officers, people I talked to was that concept of all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And that really, that really drove it home very succinctly for me. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I struggle with this so much. Uh, that, you know, when someone says Black Lives Matter and then it's combated with Blue Lives Matter, um, you know, all lives matter. And I firmly believe that that until all Black Lives Matter, you know, then none of the others can matter as well. And again, this is 
and, and this is, you know, I, I say this all the time, but it's this anti-intellectualism that cannot seem, you know, to grasp the concept that it takes nothing away from you to acknowledge that Black lives matter when in the, our history they didn't. And so, so to acknowledge the fact that, you know, say it, you know, there, there's, say it, racism is wrong, Black lives matter, say that, believe that, and then all of us, you know, can matter, but not until then. Yeah. 100%. It doesn't take any anything away from us. And I think that that there's a big difference between being against racism and being anti-racist, being intolerant of racism. And as individuals and people and as police organizations and as institutions, we have to be anti, anti-racist. So there's three things right now, Kristen, that, that, that people that are, that are drawing the protest, many, many peaceful, right? Let's, let's point out that many people um, of many different ethnicities of both genders are going out in peaceful protests demanding change. And they've, some have turned violent and very, very destructive. They've been very destructive in your community, but they seem to be centered around police brutality, mm-hmm. police racism, and a failure of police accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you see as some of the solutions? What do we need to do as a police institution, right, to, to start to solve some of these challenges? Right. Wow. Uh, if I had the answer to that, um, you know, I'd probably uh, be on uh, my own private island somewhere um, uh, because I don't know the answer. Um, you know, and I, I work, can try to work through it is that, you know, you have a uh, you know, a group of peaceful protesters that, you know, who, who tried honestly to protest peacefully by kneeling and, you know, and that was met with such opposition, you know, so then you have people taking to the streets and that's when we see a tipping point when people come out, you know, and, and let their voices be heard. That's when real change happens. And that is, you know, I, I'm, I'm so in favor of that, no matter what your, your cause is, what your passion is, but this brought people to the streets, but we have a, a, a small faction who are using it as an opportunity to loot and, you know, to set things on fire, to steal, you know, to, you know, to be violent. And I know that, you know, our greatest leaders in history, um, you know, during civil unrest were, um, you know, were promoting peace and, you know, and, and all of the people that we look up to, you know, said violence is not the answer. I stand firmly with that. So, you know, I was just talking with a group of officers yesterday. We were just all standing around, of course, solving the problems of the world, you know, while we're, you know, hanging around the water cooler. And I asked them, I said, what, how do you stop this? Because you were looking at Chicago, it happened here. Um, You know, how do you stop people from coming in and damaging property? You know, and, and, what, what I struggle with as well is that in Aurora, um, you know, we have most the majority of our businesses are Latinx owned. And, you know, so people of color have these businesses that, that were, you know, that were being stolen from. And so, you know, it, it defies logic to some people. How can you come in and, you know, in, in, you know, minority owned businesses, persons of color and hurt them, you know, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So we have this faction of opportunists that are coming in just to wreak havoc, but what, how do you stop it? What's the answer? You know? And so on one side of the equation, you have, um, 
you know what, hands off, look what happened in Seattle. You know, the, the uh, city council voted uh, to take away all less lethal, less lethal options from the police. So they couldn't use, you know, um, any OC spray, they couldn't use anything. Um, and so that meant that the police said, okay, we have to step back, we have to take a step back. So what happened? All of the property, you know, was it was looted and it was destroyed. So then, once again, the pendulum shifts. Okay, now hold on, we need the police to come in. So option two, the other side is is that you have people standing there in uniform and full force protecting property. What's the right answer? Um, you know, and I I think that we leave that to the public to decide. You know, you have a lot of. Uh, business owners, community members that will say, I want the police standing in front of my property, blocking that street off. Um, but then you have another, um, you know, percentage that says, no, let, let this happen. The police should not stand in our way. Um, I fall into the category that we have to protect, again, lives, priority, life, you know, the, the preservation of life is our number one priority. Number two is, protection of property because we are protecting our taxpayers, our community members, our business owners. We owe it to them to protect their property. And so I fall into that category is that we have to protect, you know, those business owners. They are people. And so um, it is, it is their livelihoods. We have to protect that. Uh, do I believe that, you know, that violence, um, should occur? No, I would hope not. I, I, I mean, but we have to also meet violence with violence, sadly, you know, and that, that's the struggle, you know, and you'll get people on the other side of the coin that say, step aside, step aside and, and let us damage this property. And I, I struggle with that as a, as a law enforcement officer. Um, I struggle with that. And, you know, and I think we have to protect. I agree. And I, I really appreciated, there's been so many black leaders that have come out and and spoken on this, uh, you know, representatives of Black Lives Matter, and, and and I think we should make it real clear to our listeners that Black Lives Matter does not support the destruction of property or violence. In fact, in fact, I've seen many things where they're calling for an end to that because it it defeats what they're trying to do. That that's not what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. believed in. That's not what's created so much progress. That divides, that puts us farther apart at greater odds. This concludes part one of Policing in America. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or rating if you're listening on Apple, and please consider sharing it with your network. Thank you for joining us, and remember, always be committed to excellence.